Hello! You're plugging in to the Evolution Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share with you another awesome message from Pastor Charmaine. Have an awesome day. We'll see you at church. My message today is titled, I'm Here, Lessons from Isaiah. Okay? So I'm going to start with Isaiah chapter 6 today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn there. And of course, if you're there, tell me yes. Let me know. And what I'm going to do today really is to share a few things that God spoke to me over the leaders' retreat months ago and also things that God is teaching me recently through the Word. So it's going to be more of a teaching session today versus a lot of preaching. Is that all right? Okay, so Isaiah 6. Everyone there? Okay, so it says there, In the year of King Uzziah's death, we assume this is Isaiah speaking because it's his book and all the words are his. So generally, even though he doesn't name himself, he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a high and exalted throne and the edges of his robe filling the temple. Winged creatures were stationed around him. Each had six wings. With two, they veiled their faces. With two, their feet. And with two, they flew about. They shouted to each other saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heavenly forces. All the earth is filled with God's glory. The door frame shook at the sound of their shouting, and the house was filled with smoke. I said, mourn for me, I'm ruined. I'm a man with unclean lips, and I live among a people with unclean lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heavenly forces. Then one of the winged creatures flew to me holding a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has departed, and your sin is removed. Then I heard the Lord's voice saying, Whom should I send, and who will go for us? I said, I'm here, send me. Okay, so if you're wondering where our series title came from, I'm here, comes from, it's from this very famous passage where Isaiah has an encounter with God. Okay, now most Christians title this story, The Call of Isaiah, assuming that this was the moment God appeared to Isaiah and called him to the office of a prophet over Israel. Right? Much like the stories of the prophet Jeremiah or the apostle Paul, you know, God dun, dun, appeared to him and called him. Now maybe, possibly, we don't know for sure how Isaiah felt about that moment. He doesn't say explicitly. But exegesis-wise, that means unpacking the Bible in academic study. You know, scholars will actually tell you something interesting, and that is they would rather title this passage, The Sending of Isaiah. That there is actually a difference, even though most Christians don't talk about it, that there's a difference between calling stories and sending stories in the Bible. You see, Christians, right, we tend to love the word calling and paint everything in our lives with one broad brushstroke, calling. I mean, we say about our gifts, our gifts and talents are God's calling. 
You know, your ministry in church, you know, I am called to projection. You know, your career, which church you go to, whether you are a parent, single, rich, poor, everything, God has called me. But narratively speaking, as far as how it's written about in the Bible, there seems to actually be a little bit of a difference between the two experiences. Now, if you're new here, don't worry about it. It will make some sense today and it will make a lot of sense one day. But for the leaders here and the more experienced Christians in the room, I repeat, there is often a difference as far as the Bible is concerned. Now, not a super important difference, but a helpful difference when it comes to reworking, rethinking how we define God's calling in our lives and how we respond when God speaks to us instructions. You see, calling tends to refer to a connection between our inner identity and God's larger purpose. Let me repeat, callings tend to be sometimes kind of vague and kind of general and hard to define because it's about a connection and a trajectory between our innermost identity, who God created you to be, and God's larger plan and purpose for the world, humanity, and the places He's put you in. So each of us can have a calling for our individual life. We can also have group callings, you know, community callings like Fortivo. Now, again, the definition will tend to look more like a trajectory than an exact role or exact place. Now, sending, however, in the Bible, which is where we mix it up, sending tends to be more specific. It tends to take the form of a task or a role or responsibility that God asks us to take on as we journey with Him. Now, both can occur very supernaturally, as you can see with Isaiah's experience. You know, it can, there can be moments in our life where God speaks, you know, supernaturally. And it's like there's this external intervention coming strongly through a vision or a dream or a prophecy. And it feels like it arrests you. It surprises you. Sometimes it even shocks you. What? I'm called to this? Are you here with me? But sometimes callings and sendings can also come as a still small voice or a gradual discovery of what God is asking you to do. And here's what I've noticed about sendings and callings. You know, people tend to think, oh, it's just one bright white light experience. There must be one big occurrence in my life. God must suddenly appear from heaven and Jesus must walk into the room. But really, often, God tends to call us and send us multiple times. And each time he reveals something or he adds something new or he explains something, he expands something. Other times he repeats himself simply because there's something we've yet to obey him about. So he says over and over and over again. Now listen, I can distinctly remember being called or sent by God multiple times in my journey as a Christian. Now, of course, we tend to write down and remember the most supernatural, spectacular ones, right? For example, there was once when I was 17, a guest speaker came to my church and he preached on this very passage in Isaiah. And I was on projection that day. Now, now projection that day, not sophisticated, all right? So some of you who are old enough can remember overhead transparency projector. Who can remember? You know, you know, I think we kept one, right? Did we ever keep one just so that 
Oh, no, we use it for design work, right? Sometimes. Yeah, so some of you have seen it, right? Like, oh my God, what is that thing? Right, it will sit at the edge of the stage next to the speaker and somebody has to physically, right, you know, flip these plastic pieces of sheets with lyrics printed on it. So we have to flip and then we have to quickly verse time up, you know, and then cover with paper the rest of it. Then chorus, reveal the chorus, right? And that was how we did projection. And so I was on duty that day when I was 17, the guest speaker was there, and suddenly in the middle of his message, like nearer the tail end, he suddenly points to me and says, God is sending you. And then, bam, I drop to my knees, and I start crying, bawling my eyes out. It was so, and I couldn't stop. And he just continues preaching. And as I'm there on the ground, God began speaking to me about things I would do in the future. That he was calling me to something, to do something for him. The guest speaker wraps up the sermon, goes through a very long altar call, prays for people. They also fall under the power of God. But eventually they get out and all my friends go to lunch and I'm still there on the floor one and a half hours after the gathering. Now, was that experience a calling? Or ascending? I'm not sure, maybe both. But it wouldn't be the first or last time I experienced an encounter with God. I've experienced encounters when I was 14, 15, 16, 19 years old, different times in my 20s, different times in my 30s. And even this year, I'll say this year is a year where God is speaking to me strongly, calling me about something that I have yet to fully understand about His future for me. So you see, calling, what does it do? It helps us to become more in tune with God. To start to recognize when God is moving and speaking to our heart. You see, once you have an encounter of a calling from God, it's like suddenly your heart becomes energized and attuned to everything that occurs that might be God speaking to you. You know, certain messages on the pulpit start to stand out. Certain things people say to you in passing, just that one sentence sticks out, right? I mean, sometimes you could be watching Wakanda forever, and bam, Jesus was speaking to you from the silver screen. Now, sending, on the other hand, is as you do what God tells you to do, the mission that God tasks you with, it becomes clues, little discoveries, Dots that help to connect and lead us closer or at least affirm that we are called by God. Now, you don't always have to define which is happening in your life, but sometimes it's helpful to distinguish both. And often it's very important actually to desire supernatural encounters with God to affirm your faith. However, the most important part, and that's the part we want to talk about today, is that we come with the right heart to these experiences and we respond to God correctly. Because listen to me here, none of you here are here by accident. Every one of you were put on this earth at a certain time and place for a reason. There is a meaning and purpose to your existence. And if you can learn to tune and align yourself to God, to respond to his interactions with you, you will do more than just accomplish a career. 
you do more than just attain stability and success for your future. Because truly living is something deeper and it's something bigger. I mean, clearly they will say it is something deeper and it is something bigger. Because listen, calling is that connection between who God made you to be on the inside and that bigger plan and purpose that he has for the world. And God wants to reveal that to you. God wants to help you forge meaning and purpose for your life. See, a lot of people think, right, calling and destiny is found. It's not found. What I found is very often it is forged. So I'm going to give you a few key observations from Isaiah 6, and then we're going to pray again, all right? Maybe we continue from today's uh, church-wide prayer meeting. Dun, dun. Ooh, I can feel the nervous energy in the room again. Okay, so observation number one, it's easy to say I'm called, it's harder to live, I'm present, send me. It's easy to say I'm called, it's harder to live, I'm present, God, send me. Listen, I was 14 when I first gave my life to Jesus Christ. And for me, just personally for me, and it doesn't need to be this way for everybody, listen, but for me, everything happened in a really supernatural way, and the supernatural that lasted for many years, and in fact, still occurs in my life very often. So listen, as far as supernatural spiritual experiences go, I had zero excuses not to follow Jesus. Because I was someone who was having visions, dreams, like going on Joan of Arc, are you hearing me? Spectacularly tangible physical encounters with the Holy Spirit. You know, when I was a youth, nearly every week in church, you know, I was, along with my friends, falling under the power of God, as we called it then and still call it now. And again, $10 for anyone that can help us rebrand that phrase. Still waiting for the soaking one, still waiting for the falling under the power of God one, right? So weird, I, like non-Christians are like, what the heck? <laughs> right, so some days, you know, when I did quiet time, I felt so Jesus himself walked into the room. And it wasn't just me being off my rocker or mentally unsound, because I also had people, friends, visiting prophets, pastors, laying hands on me at meetings and saying things that only I knew about from my own quiet time. You know, and sometimes it will even be an exact word or exact image in my head. And so from the time I was 14, I knew that I knew God was real and that I was called. I was sure that there was a plan for my life. I was sure that God had ordained a reason for my existence. However, here's the interesting thing I have observed about myself and about people. And that is, despite knowing I was called, being called didn't in and of itself make me more like Jesus or a better follower of Christ. Wait, what? Some of you are thinking, right, man, CJ, if I could encounter God like that, my Christian life would be set. I would never backslide. I would never doubt God. I would never struggle. You know, I might even be like you a pastor or a leader in church doing great things for God. But the truth is, in all my years of being a Christian and pastoring Christians, I haven't found that to be the case. 
You see, one of the gifts that surfaced really early on for me was the prophetic. And some of you got a taste of it today when we were doing church-wide quiet time. To get technical, you know, it could refer to the word of knowledge, word of wisdom, prophecy. It basically means I had this repeated ability to hear God, not just for myself, but for other people quite consistently. And very often at a level that was more accurate than normal. Now, what my theological position is on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, who knows, right? I'm not sure I have an answer, but I can tell you that I have this ability to hear God on behalf of other people. Calling, direction, instruction, encouragement, correction. And very often when I was young, what would happen was that I would be in the middle of a gathering just like this, or at school talking to God, and the Holy Spirit would suddenly say to me, go up to this person and tell them this on my behalf. Go up to that person and say that they need a word of encouragement. Or, you know, we will be in a leaders meeting and the church will be praying about something and he will say, you know, this is the plan, this is what you need to say. But 99% of the time, as a young person, I would chicken out. I would refuse to speak up, even when leaders in the room made room for me to do so. You know, I would go, God, I'm a new Christian. God, I am too young. God, what if I'm wrong and I embarrass myself? God, what people think I'm weird? And so I spent the better part of my youth, despite being called by God, I spent it emoing. You know, oh God, why you ask me to do such difficult things? You know, Isaiah was, oh, woe is me. God sent me. I was like, oh, woe is me. Don't send me. <laughs> and all that time, while this was happening in real life, every day during my quiet time, it's like I was another person. I would have these amazing encounters with Jesus and pray things like, God, show me my calling. God, tell me about my purpose and future. God, help me to become great and make a difference in the world. But then, when I go back to real life, whenever God would say go, I would refuse. I would struggle, emo, and make it all about me. You see, here's the thing, right? We all tend to define calling as some special role, some special title, some special job, some special plan that God has for us. And that's really true to a great extent. But the part we like most about this is not the role that comes with responsibility, not the job that we have to work at, not the plan that we have to obey God about. The part we like most about calling is being special. Right? Our ego, as human beings, latches on to that part of the definition, I am special. I am called to a future that's special as compared to everyone else. I am a unique snowflake. <laughs> but then, we do nothing about the part where Isaiah goes, man, my God is so great. I am beside myself. The, the word actually there in Hebrew means I'm, the woe is me, I am done. It means I am lost. God, your plan is so awesome. Who am I to be privy to it? You know, we miss on a part where he goes, I'm here, God. I'm present for you in this moment and in your plan, send me. You see, calling is not supposed to you know, just be something in theory. It is meant to connect us to God and to a higher purpose. You know, being sent by God 
a lot of it that calling is about being present and about action. It's not just a nice idea. So listen, we got to be very careful when we ask God, show me our calling. You know, we want to be careful not to let our shallow ego get in the way of us deeply connecting with God. And let me tell you, it is so easy to let that happen. Even today, after 20, 30 years of being a Christian, it is still hard for me sometimes. I mean, let's be real, right? All of us, when we first started following Jesus, it was for selfish reasons. He met a need in our life. He made us feel seen, loved, understood, healed. He gave us hope, a dream for our future, confidence. Right? But don't stop there. Because if you do, you're going to end up becoming one of those Christians who uses calling as just a way to hold up their fragile self-esteem. And when you do that, listen, at best, you will never grow into a self-assured, confident human being who knows who God wants you to be. At worst, you'll become one of those unbearable Christians who uses the word calling as an excuse to tout their power over other people. I am called to be a Christian. Jesus chose me. I am special, so everyone else who is against me or disagrees with me is going to hell. I am called by God to be the head and not the tail at work. God's special favor and blessing, I lay hands on myself, is on me. He will bless me more than all my other non-Christian colleagues. Who? You know what happens is these people, if they do well at work, they become a pain in everybody's behind. If they don't do well, they go into an emotional tailspin about how God is not fair and how what the Bible teaches and everyone testifies about on the pulpit is fake. I said, my problem with that is you've never read your Bible before, so how you know it's fake? Ooh. Then they will say, don't worry, CJ's not talking about you. And keep your hand twisted behind your back. When Isaiah responded to God, it was not in theory. It was not with his ego in mind. It was not some poetic, performative, here I am, send me. It was, I'm here. And that's the thing I love about the CB version that made this passage come alive to me after 20 years. God, I'm here. I'm present with you. If you need someone to go, I'm available. I will do the work. I will be faithful to you right here and right now, even if your plan doesn't look like my plan. You see, guys, your calling is a great future. But more than that, your calling is who you are right now. Your humility, your values, your response to God. You know, I love to worship God. I love to come to church and experience God's presence. You know, one of the greatest blessings this season of my life is to see the leader standing on the pulpit preaching and have other people leading the worship in the room because finally after many years, I get to just be and just enjoy and just receive and just learn. I love it. I love God's Word and I love the wisdom of the leaders who stand on this pulpit to speak. 
But you know what I have found too? I have found that people don't decide their attitude and response to God when we approach His presence. Then worship and church in and of itself can become incredibly self-indulgent and incredibly self-serving. I mean, you know what I mean, right? It can become all about us and not about God. It can all become all about self-help and getting ahead and nothing to do about being a good friend, being a good human being, making a difference in the community, being a light for Jesus in the world. It can be so indulgent. But if you are someone who is listening, the way Isaiah was listening when he came to the temple of God to pray, if you are coming to be sent, then all this stuff that we do is no longer self-indulgent, it becomes transformative. All this that we do, the rituals, the worship, the meeting together, the praying for each other, the quiet time, the seasons of Bible study, the seasons of EV and outings and building community and making a difference in COW, all this becomes doorways to your calling. You see, I want to point out a couple of things about this powerful encounter that Isaiah had, right? So let's go back to six and you can follow me, right? So let me point out a couple of things. Firstly, this calling or sending of Isaiah takes place in chapter 6. After Isaiah had been consistently obeying God by speaking on behalf of God and ministering to people for five chapters before. And that's only what's recorded. So he's already serving, he's already ministering, he's already trying to make a difference. Second observation, the vision that he has, this awesome vision in the temple, occurs while Isaiah, Isaiah is in the temple. I presume he's there because he's there to pray or to make an offering or sacrifice to do something to seek God and be right with God. So he's serving, ministering, he's also worshipping and making a prayer connection. Third observation is how his vision unfolds, okay? God doesn't pop out and immediately say, yo, Isaiah, this is what I want you to do. No, instead, what occurs is the heavens open and Isaiah gets to eavesdrop on a divine conversation going on in the throne room of God. I assume, in my own imagination, it's God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit having a discussion like when they created the world, Right? And he hears, he overhears, he overhears, he says, Then I heard the Lord's voice saying, Whom shall I send? And who shall go for us? And that's when Isaiah says, I'm here. Send me. And that's when God replies, Go. You see, too many of us, right, waste so much time waiting and waiting and waiting to be called. Right? We want a leader to come up to us and say, serve, there's a need. We want God to come up to us, you know, Jesus is going, oh, look at the world, it's so broken, go on my behalf. But you know what we can learn from Isaiah? Sometimes being called or sent is about aligning yourself to what God is already doing and asking, can I participate? You see, here's the thing about calling and being sent. As we serve and minister, we get access to the discussion. 
we get to eavesdrop and notice and pay attention and observe the needs in the room. You see, as we worship and pray, we get access to what God is thinking about, what God is imagining, what God is hoping, what God is desiring for the future or for the situations that you find yourself in. And when we hear that need, we get to respond and say, can I participate? God, can I be present for you and present for others? God, can you use me? God, can you send me? So listen, if you've been waiting around for the heavens to open and a voice to speak to you, you've been waiting around for your leader to suddenly come from behind and go, yo. <laughs> listen, why not tune your ears to the need? You know, our calling and our mission on earth are not some airy, fairy philosophy and theory. Our meaning and purpose lies in the needs that we're able to meet and the lives we are able to touch. So dream about the future. Desire supernatural encounters because they strengthen your faith and sometimes they open up whole universes that you never imagined. But listen, also be present for your calling. Number two, here's my second thing that I want to say to you. God cannot send you unless he's allowed to change you. See, Isaiah 6, verse 5, let's go there again. If you're there, say yes. Isaiah says, mourn for me, I'm ruined. I'm a man with unclean lips and I live among the people with unclean lips. And yet I have seen the king. Then, next thing happens, a winged creature flies to him holding a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth and said, see, I've touched your lips and now your guilt has departed and your sin removed. Now, I know, right, CB somehow is still, in this case, a little bit poetic, right? But let me read to you bits from the Message Bible, okay? Isaiah says, I am as good as dead. Every word I have spoken is tainted, blasphemous even. And the people I live with talk in the same way using words that are corrupt and desecrate. And here I've looked at God in the face. Then one of the angels flew to me, he had a live coal that he had taken. He touched my mouth and said, look, the coal has touched your, your lips. God is your guilt. Your sins are wiped out. And then and only then we get to the bit where God says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah replies, send me. So you need to understand this, right? You know, there's no way around it. Being a Christian should and must change you. Right, we used to have this saying when we were first starting out as Tivo, right, all the way back in Kanang days, we used to say the only constant in being a disciple of Jesus is change. Yes. Now, I'm not talking about change in your identity. I'm not talking about change in your authentic self. I'm talking about how being with Jesus should make you a better human being. Every year, you should be able to look back and reflect and realize that, hey, today, I am more myself and my better self than last year. Now, I know right nowadays, it's no longer in to talk about sin. 
Right, oh, come on, PC, we're a progressive, inclusive, accepting church. We're not supposed to talk about sin. Sin is judgmental. Sin is critical. Sin is exclusionary. Right, the new face of Christianity shouldn't talk about sin. You know, pastor, come on, $50 rebrand. Listen, that's just BS. How do we create a better world? Have you thought about this? How do we create a better world if we are not honest about our failings? And listen, not just about, you know, we like to write our generation, be honest about other people's shortcomings. <laughs> On social media, about corporate and systemic and institutional shortcomings. But our own individual shortcomings, no, 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 self-care. <laughs> it's okay, self-compassion. Be easy on yourself. Listen, change for a better future requires us to come to terms with who we are right now and what we need to change. So listen, we are a progressive Christian community, but that doesn't mean we stop believing in the value of confessing our sins and transforming our lives through repentance, another big word for you. Wow, pastor, repentance. Old word, old word. It doesn't mean we stop believing in the value and necessity of God's Word in instructing and guiding our lives. In fact, if anything, I think being progressive should raise the bar higher because I think Jesus raised the bar higher. I think caring about the nuance of the Word of God and the Spirit of the Word raises the bar of our character higher. And here's the thing, right? Again, back to calling. None of us can truly live into a calling without knowing how to engage with our sin and repentance in God's presence. So let me define for you, right? Okay, what is sin? Okay? You know, in Hebrew, there are actually three main words for sin. The first is the word kata, which is where we get the direct translation in English, sin. Okay, kata means to fail or miss the mark. It's the one that Paul is talking about when he says we fell short of grace. We kata, we miss the mark, okay? But listen, here's the interesting thing that many Christians sometimes don't talk about. This failing and missing the mark isn't just something general like, oh, I feel like I'm a failure, I'm not perfect enough, I'm not holy enough. No, listen, kata is actually very specific specifically related to the sacredness of every human being being made in the image of God. And the need, therefore, to honor God as we should and to honor the image of God in people as we should. So remember the Ten Commandments, right? The first four about, are about how we can fall short at honoring God. The next six are about how we can fail at honoring people and Failing to honor people is the same as failing to honor God. But here's the thing too about Qatar, right? It's, all, it's not all woe and doom. Qatar in the Bible is not unempathetic about our human struggle with sin. In fact, all throughout the stories where the word Qatar is used in the Old Testament, there's this clear sense in the stories that human beings we are blind to and often struggle and don't even realize that we're missing the mark. And that is why we have the New Testament where Jesus understands this and he comes to help deal with our sin nature. He gives us the Holy Spirit so that the spirit of conviction can help us grow into our righteousness. 
So listen, being honest about our sin is not about living in perpetual regret and self-condemnation. In fact, one Jewish rabbi explains it like this. He says, sin isn't just missing the mark. It is a missed opportunity for kindness and righteousness. Qatar. The second word for sin is pesha. And this is usually translated in English as transgression. Okay? It means to rebel. But an even more accurate version of this word is, it actually means breaking trust with. So in the Bible, this word for sin is always used in the context of a relationship. Now, it can be a relationship between two nations who, for example, are in a treaty, and Pasha is used to describe the breaking of that agreement of trust. So, for example, if you read OT, there's a particular line in the Bible, it goes, Moab rebelled against Israel. Actually, that's a wrong translation. It shouldn't be translated that because it will be more accurately translated as, Moab broke trust with Israel. Pasha is used to describe the breaking of trust between two people as well. For example, King Saul with David. So whenever Pasha occurs, you'll find that there's this sense of a loss because of the breaking of trust with somebody, a loss of integrity, a loss of wholeness, a loss of peace. Interesting. Pasha is also used to describe the breaking of trust between humanity and God. So in Apostle Paul writings, he uses the Greek equivalent word to describe how Jesus actually allowed us to do the worst of Pasha towards him on the cross. And now, through his example and through the power of the Holy Spirit and his work on the cross, he allows us to now return to live with faithfulness, trustworthiness, and integrity. Pasha. Last one, Avon. Now, Avon is usually translated iniquity. Sometimes wickedness, sometimes guilt. Okay, now, Avon is very interesting because Avon means literally bent or crooked or twisted. And so, when the Bible talks about our iniquity, he talks about, it talks about us twisting the path that God has set for us. And here's the other interesting bit about, about, about Avon. It comes attached with it. It's not only that twisted action, but it also comes attached with it and bearing the twisted consequences of our actions. So this word is used to describe situations when Israel deserted their covenant to follow false gods. Or when somebody morally fails, falls in situations where their conscience and choices are bent out of shape or distorted. Everything from murder to lying to corruption among Israel's leaders to ignoring injustice to forgetting the poor, Avon. But the interesting thing about Avon is whenever it is used, it never just describes the twisted behavior itself, but also the consequences that result. The broken relationships, the cycles of injustice, and specifically how the sins that we commit come around to hurt us in the end. And that is why the Bible has phrases like, they will sit in their own iniquity. They will bear their iniquity. It basically means what goes around comes around. 
God doesn't need to punish us for our sins. Our sins will punish ourselves. So listen, sin isn't some outdated, judgy, exclusive weapon that religion came up with. If you think about it, it is really a relevant description of the human condition. It is a very real description of the reasons for brokenness and violence in this world. So sin. Now, what is the solution to sin? Repentance. Ready to learn more? Now, what is repentance? Well, the Hebrew word for repentance is teshuvah, which directly translated means returning. But it's not just returning to God. Listen, it involves a certain process of reviewing, of reframing our perspective, of recasting how we respond and will construct our future life and our behavior. Teshuvah. Now, the equivalent in Greek is metanoia. And metanoia means to change one's mind and change one's, and thus change one's way of life. So again, understand this. The point of repentance is not to feel sorry. It's not condemnation. It is acknowledging and coming to terms with what we have done so that we can return to God, so that we can reframe our lives, so that we can change our actions, so that we can transform ourselves and thus transform the future. You see, a Christian who ignores sin and does not engage in regular repentance isn't capable of bettering their lives or the world around them. Now, and let me push this idea even further. Is that okay? So remember where this act of cleansing Isaiah happens, right? In the story, right? This whole vision. It doesn't occur after Isaiah says, send me, it occurs before. Isaiah had this moment of conviction of his sin and a moment of repentance and cleansing. Right? Let let me say again, right? You see Isaiah 6, 5? I'm good as dead. He, He had this realized that every word I have ever spoken is tainted, blasphemous even. I don't know exactly what he means, but he recognizes something is wrong with how he's speaking. And the people I live with talk the same way, using words that are corrupt and desecrate. And here I have looked at the holy God face to face. Right? And then we have this bizarre situation. One of the angels, Sarah, flies to him with a live coal that he had taken from the tongs from the altar in the temple. And he touched my mouth with the coal and said, Yes, touch your lips. Gone is your guilt. Your sins are wiped out. So again, right here, right? Gone is Avon. Your katar is wiped out. So understand this, right? This comes before. So that means God cannot call you unless he's allowed to change you. Isaiah had to come to a place of great and overwhelming humility before God recognizing his sin and the sin of the world around him. He had to come to a point of complete awe that a sinful human being like him was allowed to look upon a truly holy God. And you know what? I think that attitude, that spirit, is what attracted God to him. That spirit made God go, I think we're safe to reveal our plans to Isaiah. 
I think we can let him eavesdrop on this divine conversation up in heaven. You see, very often you got to understand this, the depth of your encounter is determined by the depth of your surrender. You know, when we're in a, when we're in, we're new, when we're in a beginning, the beginning of our relationship with God, you know, when we're in seasons, maybe if you've been a Christian longer, where we really need encouragement and help, we all have those moments, right? God loves us, so He will initiate encounters with us. You know, I mean, that's what was happening, right? I mean, Jesus said, you know, people didn't look for Him and He came to find them. So God has this loving spirit about him that sometimes he will just come find you. You know, sometimes it can be directly through an unexpected spiritual encounter with God. Sometimes it comes through messages, altar calls, a friend, you know, hearing someone like they minister to you and they don't know who you are sitting on stage. They don't know your situation. They didn't talk to you, but you didn't tell anybody. But somehow God used them to speak to you. We all need those moments in our lives. There's nothing wrong with it. We all need to be reminded of how loved we are. But listen, when it comes to living our calling and wanting to be sent by God, there's also a part, a large part of the process where we must learn to attract God with our surrender. And, and listen to me, right? Why wouldn't that be the case? I mean, any mature person understands, right? If you want to be led by a great leader, if you want to have a great mentor in your life, if you want to be a part of building something great to be, to be in a job that is fulfilling, it's something that we have to attract and be worthy of. You know, but I find right nowadays, people behave like it's right. Not just, you know, with people and careers, but even with God. Like, God is the one who has to earn the right to be the center of our lives. Like, God is unfair if He doesn't call us or send us or give us a big opportunity. Listen, I have always known God to be good and kind and gracious and generous, even when He didn't need to be, even when I wasn't worthy. I mean, just even Jesus. Jesus was sent to give us forgiveness and acceptance even when we did not deserve it. You know, so many times in my life, even when I didn't behave like Isaiah, God still chose to believe in me and give me second chances and opportunities I didn't earn. But there comes a point if we ever want to fully live into all God has called us to be and do, we have to understand the power of humility and surrender. The power of being in awe of our holy and all-powerful God. See, the Bible, you know what, has stories of men who were called by God but never lived into their potential. For example, men like King Saul. You know, the Bible says when he was first called by God, the Spirit of the Lord fell on him and Saul began to prophesy. But the Bible says he prophesied once and never prophesied again. He had a title but not the anointing. The Bible talks about men like Balaam who were called to be a prophet of God, but he twisted his prophetic gift for money. God kept sending supernatural warnings. Balaam, don't do it, don't do it. He still went, you know, and then God sent a donkey to talk to him even. And an angel with a flaming sword to stand in between to stop him from continued moral failure. 
But he will always superficially, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, okay, scared, go back. And then he will always try to get away with it again. Until in the end, law has it, legend has it, myth has it, don't know, but a lot of the apostles and a lot of the rabbis talk about him that he was killed by the people he tried to curse for money. You see, you cannot disengage calling from character. You cannot disengage calling from humility and surrender. You cannot disengage greatness from having an open heart and a desire to be good. So listen, if you want to hear God about your calling, if you want to live a great life, I mean, even though we're talking about this spiritually, this applies to work as well, in the natural. Don't just ask about your calling. Don't just ask God what makes me special. Don't just demand blessings. Instead, ask God, what can I grow in? What can I change? What can I do to be more like you? What can I do to represent you? Who do you need me to be so that I can please and honor you and honor people as you and people deserve? You see, we're always running to God for what we want. But God is also looking for someone who is interested in what he wants. Someone who is willing to change to be worthy of their calling. Are you willing to change to be worthy of your calling? Third point. Third lesson from Isaiah. How we use our lips matters. You know, again, this story is endlessly fascinating. I mean, why the lips? You know, if I were Isaiah the temple, I'd be like, Peter, right? You know, God, why? You need to cleanse my lips. My lips all of me, my feet, my hands, my head, everything. Take it. <laughs> right? I mean, why not cleanse Isaiah's heart? Right? The Bible talks about the heart endlessly. The Bible talks about pure hands endlessly. The Bible talks about our walk before God endlessly. Why lips? So I'm going to give you a completely personal speaking to myself take here, all right? And this is what I think about lips. You know, the things we say, whether out loud or to ourselves in our head, it can determine our perception and our experience of God, of our calling, of our life, of our mission in this world, of our relationships, of our community. You know, what is it that James liked to say in his letter? He said, the tongue is a small, small flame, but it can set an entire forest ablaze. The tongue is a small rudder in our bodies, but it can determine the direction of our life, whether it's life or death. You know, the tongue can purify us, it can corrupt us. The tongue, the lips, can align us with God's call and it can align us out of God's call. You know, our lips can light up our soul and fill us with passion for God and life. It can also burn down the whole house. So friend, my question to you is what words are you speaking? 
Are your lips setting you up for life or setting you up for death? What words are setting your experience on fire? What words are fogging up your perception? Are you saying to yourself, God loves me, is with me, molding me and growing me? Or are you saying things like, I'm not good enough, I'm too young, I'm not called to be a servant or leader of God, even though God has told you you are. Listen, I learned quite early on in my youth that maturity is learning to say what God has to say about us. No more. You don't need to fluff it up. You don't need to be arrogant. You don't need to be a shithead. No less. You don't have to be self-deprecating. You know, I don't know, take up bashing yourself on the head in order to be a Christian. Now, that's not to say it's been easy to say what God says, right? There are so many days I don't want to say what God has to say about me. It could be because I'm struggling with my insecurities that way. It could be because to say what God says will mean lots of sacrifices and you feel like it's too much. You know, some days I'm selfish. Some days I'm too selfless. Some days I'm arrogant and rebellious. Other times it feels like I just can't live up. It's not easy to use our lips well. But if you want to grow into a better you, a you that follows Jesus well, then James, and really so many other parts of the Bible says, tame your tongue. I know, right? Wow, such a Christian thing to say, tame your tongue. But here's the thing. I found that what the Bible says tends to be true. Completely true. So, a book that I read not too long ago is Brene Brown's latest best-selling book, okay? Brene Brown, if you don't know, is a professor, a researcher, and she decided to study the power of language on human experience. So, the book Atlas of the Heart is basically an encyclopedia of 87 human emotions that we experience and how it determines how we behave and how we live. But one of the interesting key things she found in researching these 87 emotions is that she found the words we speak, the words we use to describe our feelings has the power to define our perception and our experience. And subsequently, because it defines our perceptions of situations and relationships and our experience, it starts to take our life in either our life and relationships in either a positive or negative direction. Language. So for example, if you keep saying to yourself or anybody who will hear you, I am angry with God, I am angry with God, I am angry with God, you will get angrier and angrier. <laughs> and you will start to, it will start to color your perception experience. So you will start to find reasons to be offended by and blame God. And finally, what happens? It reaches a point where you've chalked up so many bad experiences and angry experiences that finally you disconnect from the relationship. Now, here's the problem. The only problem is anger is never just anger. You see, mature people understand that anger could be for many reasons. You could be angry because you're lonely. You could be angry because you're feeling rejected. You could be angry because you're afraid, you feel isolated, you feel shame or hurt or jealousy or helplessness, you feel embarrassed. 
And here's the thing that she found. When we are unable to define our feelings accurately, we end up impacting our lives and relationships negatively. This applies to our relationship with God. It applies to our relationship with people. But when we are mature, what are mature people? You know, what is maturity really? It is the expansion of vocabulary. When we have access to the right words and the right ways to define our perception and experience, you know what? Brene Brown found that it actually opens up entire opportunities and universes and relationships with other people. It can restore connection. It can invite connection. It can improve our self-awareness and EQ. It can help us resolve long-standing struggles in our lives. And so we become more at peace. We become more resilient. We become more able to live into our best selves. So back to Isaiah. Why lips? Because what we choose to say has a huge impact on our soul and on our heart. You see, we always think, right, transformation is from inside out. But really, it's actually two ways. It's also from the outside in. So be careful how you lose your lips. Don't ever go, I'm just saying only. You know, have you ever wondered why Jesus, right, said, I mean, he talks about the end times, he talks about the apocalypse, and say one day he'll come to judge the world. No, what does he say? He says, you will give account for every idle word you have spoken. You know, I learned recently in Jewish the Judaism class, right, that for rabbinical Jews, right, for, for Reformed Jews, for, well, a lot of Jewish people, when they say, you know, when, they, they think that actually when you say things to kill somebody's reputation is as good as murdering the human being. Because that is how powerful they believe words are in the Torah and in the Old Testament. Okay? Because words has the power to bring you closer or further away from God. Words have the power to connect or disconnect relationships. Words have the power to change the world around you for the better or for the worse. You know, why is the world so messy right now on social media? Because of the words we choose. For our hashtags, for our campaigns. <sighs> words. So what is the action plan then? What are we supposed to do? You know, our pastor, just mine, my words more? Yes. But there's also a very simple tactic that God has given us, okay? Which is to pray. You know, every now and then, I give the leadership team, when we are struggling or frustrated or dealing with prolonged too many problems, right? Because you know what happens when there are prolonged too many problems? You know, we start to complain. We start, about, start to talk about the same thing over and over and over again, right? And then what happens? The more we talk about it, the more it starts to define our perception and create even more of the same problem. So whenever I feel our team teetering into those situations, normally I say this to them. I've called on this maybe three or four times in the journey of our church. I say to them, the rule is for the next couple of months, pray more, talk less. You know, the world would be a better place if we just did the latter, talk less. But it would be even better if everyone prayed. 
Now, it's not just because prayer is supernatural that God will definitely wow, intervene and help you with our situation, make everybody be at peace with each other. He does sometimes, but also seldom does. So, what is prayer and what does it do? Now, again, there are a couple of different Hebrew words for prayer. Ready to learn? The first is bakasha. Now, bakasha is very interesting because the word implies two distinct entities and inferior making a request of the superior. This is the one that most people are familiar with. We come to God to pray and ask Him for things and God answers us, hopefully, right? The second word is shavak. And shavak means to worship, to praise, to glorify. And this is a very interesting part of shavak. It also means to calm, to quiet, to rest. Beautiful, right? Now, third one, which is the really powerful one, the powerful word for prayer is tefillah. And this is a very interesting word because it means self-judging through communion. So tefillah is really expensive because it includes elements of both bakasha and shavak. So we appeal to God, we also worship, come to a place of rest, right? That's how we commune, amen? But it's also in itself neither of those two words. So here are some ways that rabbis and teachers and scholars have, decide, have, have defined and, and explained and expound on the word tefillah, all right? They say, prayer is not just getting God to do something for you. It is a way of affecting change in yourself through meditation, reflection, and stock-taking. Now, Another interesting fact, you know, in rabbinical Judaism, this is what they teach. They teach that a human being is a speaking being. And when they talk about tefillah and prayer, they're very specific. They say, you know what, tefillah brings the speakingness of us human beings closer to God. So they say this, if you lift up your heart and mind but leave behind your words, you've effectively left behind a human being. You know, it's a good way, I think, to encourage people to pray louder in tongues and to pray out loud their prayers. Is <laughs> that if you lifted your heart and mind but left behind your words, you've left behind your human being. Now, we're not so strict in how we practice prayer in Christianity as far as speaking is concerned. But it is food for thought, right? That there is something about our speaking that determines the quality of our connection with God. And the quality of communion with God determines the quality of the transformation in our lives and therefore our connection with other people. So be careful. If you are called, be careful. The words you speak. Never be idle or careless. You know, and if you find that you're in a place in your life, because sometimes this happens, you know, when we're depressed, when we're burnt out, when we're tired, when we're insecure, when our ego is broken. We find that wow, we cannot tame our tongue. We feel like we need to lash out, we need to say things, we need to justify, we need to blame, we need to complain. If you find yourself in that place, then my advice to you is talk less. Pray more. Bring yourself into communion with God so that God can transform you and you can transform yourself. And you can come closer to who you truly are on the inside and be connected to the greater plan that God has for your future.